I doubt if any of us would would argue that this world is not in moral chaos and that our nation is in moral chaos. We see it all the time. We see it, uh, you know, if you read the, the paper and you go down the, the police records, you watch the news, you look at the Internet, you just pay attention to things going on around us, and you see this, this continual moral chaos, and it feels like it's just sort of twisting and turning and tumbling down to be worse and worse all the time. I saw a cartoon this week that showed a picture of God in heaven looking down at earth. And there were a couple of angels there with him. And you could tell God was contemplating what to do with the earth. What, how to fix it. And one of the angels says to him, have you tried turning it off completely and then turning it back on again? <laughs> I don't know, maybe that's the solution, right? Uh, there, there certainly have been, there's certainly been a theory of people through the ages. Just, just stop everything, just end it, and start over from scratch. And you have to wonder if there aren't sometimes when God says that would be the, the best thing to do. But he doesn't. He keeps working with us, and he keeps coming to us, and he keeps loving us, and he keeps wanting to transform us, despite the ways in which we create and continue this moral chaos. The question that was asked by some of you related to this idea of the world and the chaos has to do with the government and what role the government plays in it and how we as the church interact with the government and how we respond to the government. What do we do about trying to to fix the, the world? And how do we relate to church and state in the process of that? It's a complicated question, and you can find all kinds of theories about it. But I think that Martin Luther King Jr. was right when he said that the church is neither the master nor the servant of the state. The church is the moral conscience of the state. Who else is going to hold the state accountable other than God's people? Who else is going to try to keep the state on track about righteousness and justice and truth than the people who are committed to the one who understands what real righteousness and justice and truth is? Of course, the question for us is, how do we do that? And some people have chosen to say the only way to do that is to completely distance ourselves from anything related to government. We back away, we just let the thing go. Others have taken the opposite perspective and have jumped in with both feet. What do we do? I think when we read the, particularly the New Testament, we find on a number of occasions, Romans 13, 1, Corinthians, uh, 1 Peter 2, 1 Timothy 2, uh, we find here one of the things that we are definitely called to do, and that is to pray. We may not have any other involvement in what goes on in the government, But all of us have the right and the privilege and are commanded to pray for people in authority. Whether we agree with those people or not, whether we like them or not, whether we think they are just and right or not, our calling is to pray for them. 
I mean, Paul says, pray for those in authority. God, God had a hand in putting them there. And he's talking about Caesar. He says, pray for him. And Peter says the same thing. And Paul says to Timothy, the same thing. We are called to pray for people in authority. Because we believe in prayer. We believe in the power of prayer. We believe that that changes things. That's why we do these prayer vigils. We believe in the power of prayer to make things different. And our greatest weapon is prayer. And I suspect that probably most of us fall flat about that. We ignore this great weapon, this great tool for seeing good come in the world, and that is to pray. But the prayers are not just for people in authority. We pray because we want God to do something in us. We need to ask God, what do, we, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to be involved? What is the church's role in all that goes on with government and state? What do we do? And how, There's no way to know that until we spend time with God. Until we hear God's voice to us individually and corporately. And again, this is why the prayer vigils are so important. It's a time for us to step back from all the noise and the busyness of life. And in quietness, listen to God. To speak to God. To let God say things to us that quite frankly we allow the noise and the busyness, sometimes intentionally, to drown out his voice. How do we know what to do? How do we know how to be involved as individuals and as the church unless we ask God? And we come to God and we seek God. I think when we pray, we begin to get a sense of God's passion, God's yearning, his desire for his world. And what we might do as a part of that. It's hard to say exactly what we ought to do because it's complicated. We, we have seen through the history of God's people that when the church gets power, often not good things happen. And when the state gets a lot of power, often not good things happen. So we need to be seeking God. How do we do this correctly? I think when we come to God in prayer, we will find that one of the things God says to us, and he certainly says it in, our, in his word, is that we need to move away from thinking that our primary involvement in government and in the state is to make our lives easier. Because that's our default. That's what we tend to do because that's our human nature. Let's pass this law so that it's easier on Christians. Let's make sure this happens because, so, because it's easier on us. And we give thanks for the privileges we have. And one of the reasons we pray for the persecuted church is to ask God to help them and also to remind us how privileged we are. But we talk about, you know, we complain about people who live with a sense of entitlement. But quite frankly, we are tempted to do the same thing. It's fascinating to me that we want everyone in the culture to give us all the freedoms that we want. We want to be able to say what we want to say, when we want to say it, and where we want to say it. 
But often we are not as accommodating to other people about their freedoms. It's hard to have it both ways. And our natural inclination is to say, what, what is happening to me? What will make my life easier? What will give us as Christians more rights and power? And that's a dangerous thing to do. Unless whatever we have, we are using not for, to make our lives easier, but to help others. And for a long time, I, I had this mindset that the church just stay out of government. We just stay out of things with the state. We need to just back off and do nothing because I just watched so many people get absorbed in the power and it corrupt them. And a few years ago, I went to the Faith and Justice Symposium at the college and and one of the things that was talked about was advocacy. And they were talking about how if the church is going to be involved in any way in government, it is to be an advocate for people who have no voice. And all of a sudden, the light went on for me. It's not about the government giving us, making our lives easier. It's about being a voice, a presence for people who have no voice and no presence, who have no influence, who have no power in society. And that will be typically the poor. That will be prisoners. That will be people, uh, often people of color. That will often be people who, who just don't have the same kinds of opportunities that most of us have. It is standing up for the unborn, no doubt. They have no voice. But it's caring about all of life. It's caring about this. It's doing what God commands Israel to do. When he says to them so many times, your responsibility is to take care of the, of the aliens and the strangers among you, the orphans, the widows, the people who are powerless and voiceless in your society, in your culture. And he says, I'm going to hold you responsible for taking care of them. And one of the reasons Israel goes into exile, the prophets keep telling us over and over again, is because they ignore the needs of the most needy. And I fear that for us as the church. We get so wrapped up in, in you know, making sure that our lives are comfortable that we miss the people who are most needy. In 2002... Bob Riley was elected the governor of Alabama. He had been for a number of years um, honored as a, as a conservative, by conservatives about his stand uh, against taxes and tax increases. When he, got, when he became the governor, he started doing a little research and he found out that the tax codes in Alabama had not been changed since 1901. A hundred years. And the more he explored those codes, the more it became evident to him that they were way out of balance. Studies were showing that the wealthiest people were paying 3% in taxes and the poorest were paying 12%. Most of the income was from sales taxes. And that put the greatest burden on the people who used their money to buy the basic necessities, the poor, and had to pay tax on all of that. And so he... So he, he promoted a bill to increase taxes. 
to help get the, the state out of their fiscal quagmire and also to fund their schools more effectively because the schools in Alabama are typically rated at the lowest in the nation. And he said, you know, as Christians, we, we ought to be doing this and helping the poor. And he figured out that a person who owned a home that was worth $250,000 would pay a little under $1,500 in property taxes. Now, if you live here, you would say that would be awesome <laughs> to pay that little in taxes. And when the bill went to the state legislature, the the leader of the Christian coalition in Alabama was the most vocal voice against it. And he said, the people of Alabama are very generous, very charitable. They just don't want it coming out of their pockets. What? What does that even mean? How can you be generous and charitable and it not come out of your pocket? And something about that response, you know, it's not right. And eventually the bill was defeated and the schools remained under under, uh, supported. And, And as Christians, we have to be willing to say we'll make some sacrifices for the good of people who need it. I mean, isn't that the heart of our faith? And we're continually saying, I'm willing to sacrifice for other people. I'm willing to give so that other people have who don't have. I mean, it, it, it should be a part of our mindset. And, and as we think about the, the, the people that we vote for and the, the way that they, that they serve us and the way that they lead, is it about who has the power or is it about who's going to help the people who need it the most? You know, and it's hard because our, it goes against the grain of our nature. But that's the, the nature of God. God who is other than us keeps telling us my kingdom is about other than normal perspectives. And he doesn't play by the same rules that our politicians and our government system and the system of virtually every government plays by. You know, just the other day, there was an article in the Buffalo paper about the, uh, the election that just took place and Republicans took control of Congress. And the article was about how they're going to keep it in the 2016 election, which seemed awfully premature when they had just been elected. But you realize as you read the article that the whole point of, the, of being elected is not to see how much good I can do, but how can I get reelected? How can I maintain power? How can I hold on to power? How can I stay in office? And we can say, well, I want to stay in office because I'm doing good. But so often, all the time and energy that goes into staying in office means that's all we do. And it's about grasping for power instead of being advocates for people who have no voice. And that will come out in different ways and and it will mean, you know, we're going to disagree about how to approach different issues. And that's one of the issues, one of the problems with politics in general is that it just inherently, it creates a need for dissension. It creates an adversarial relationship. My side, your side, us and them. 
And, and, and that kind of spirit is not a spirit of, of cooperation and unity. It's a spirit that creates disunity. I mean, you, look at our nation. When I was young, it seemed to me, at least from the stories I read, that, that people in Congress who were on opposite sides of the aisle could still be best friends. Now it doesn't seem like that's possible anymore. Because if you hang out with someone on the opposite, opposite side of the aisle, you're considered a traitor. How do we get to that point? Because it's about power. And it's about fear. So much of what we, of the information we get and the messages that come to us are rooted in fear. I get mailings, quite frankly, I don't know how I get on some of these lists, but I get emails from across the political spectrum. And I've decided that it all, they're all the same. You just pluck out one political party, put in another one, pluck out a name and put in another one. It's the same letter, virtually. And the, the whole gist of it is, if you really boil it down, is be afraid. If what we want doesn't happen, everything's falling apart. If this person is elected, everything's falling apart. If this happens, the world is going to end. And the spirit of fear, I mean, we do it, people do it because it works. I mean, we, people react to fear, they give money, they support causes. Far more often by being motivated by fear, then by just this is the right thing to do. But Scripture keeps telling us, do not fear. Someone said to me after first service, they just saw the other day that that, that phrase is mentioned 365 times in the, in the Scriptures. Once for every day, do not fear. And John writes to us in his first letter, perfect love, Jesus, casts out fear. Because fear is a, is a bad motivator in the long run. Fear causes us to, to speak ill of each other in ways that we shouldn't. Fear causes us anxiety and stress. Fear causes us to, to react instead of thinking. Fear causes us to be defensive and self-protective instead of sacrificial, loving, Giving. Jesus doesn't motivate with fear. He motivates with love. It's not about power. I mean, you, know, you look at Luke chapter 9, Jesus and the disciples are traveling through Samaria and they come to a town and the people say, get out of here, we don't want you here. And the disciples say, Lord, do you want us to pray down fire to rain on them and destroy this place? Because we'll do it. I can just see Jesus shaking his head going, oh, you guys don't get this. You're missing the whole point. That's not why I'm here. And it takes them a while, but eventually it's Peter who says, even the leaders who, who beat you and persecute you, pray for them. Love them. Respect them. And loving, sacrificing doesn't mean we just let government do whatever they want. We're the moral conscience. We speak a word for truth. 
But that truth is biblical truth. That truth is the heart of God for people, not what makes life easier for us. And it means that how we do it is just as important as what we do. The language we use, the words we say, the way we speak about people who we don't like or disagree with matter. It matters how we go about doing what we do. Because often we're more concerned with an agenda than we are with people. And if we're more concerned about an agenda, then we'll use people, we'll manipulate people, we'll do whatever we have to in order to get our agenda done. And here is Jesus living in this totalitarian state. He doesn't create a a group of people to start a coup. He He doesn't try to overthrow the government. His solution is to go to the cross. Sacrifice himself. I read about a guy named, I think his name was Doug, who, new Christian, uh, this is back after the 2008 election, and he was uh, just trying to be a witness to his neighbor. And the day after the election, his neighbor came to him fuming. He said, you know what your, you Christians did to my 10-year-old daughter? He said to my 10-year-old daughter, some people said, tell your dad he shouldn't be voting for John Kerry because he, he's for abortion. He's a baby killer. And the guy said, my daughter's 10 years old. I don't even want her thinking about abortion, knowing about abortion. Why would you guys do that to her? If you got something to say to me, say it to me. And the guy said, you know, I, I had spent months trying to develop a relationship with this guy so that he might be open to Jesus. And that was undone in one conversation. Should we be standing up for abortion, against abortion? Yeah. But not like that. It matters how we say what we say. It matters what we say as we stand tall, whether we're talking about immigration reform or we're talking about poverty or any of these things. It ought to make a difference to us when the government says we're going to try to we're going to try to minimize the deficit, which is probably a good thing. But what often happens is the deficit the plan is not that we're going to cut all the pork from the budget, or not that we might back up, back down a little bit of what we're spending on the military. Let's cut food stamps. Let's cut WIC program. Let's cut things that people who have no voice have no power to do anything about it if we do it. We ought to be saying, no, that's not right. Because as the church, our goal is not How much power can we get? It's how much can we sacrifice for people who need, people who are vulnerable, so that people will see that Christians are different than everybody else. That we worship a God who is other than all the other authorities in the world. 
We look different. We speak differently. We, we act differently. We care about truth and grace. A couple weeks ago, someone sent me an article from The Economist magazine. It was about the church in China. And the, the article was talking about how the, the government is um, sort of back and forth. In some places, they're, re, they're relaxing some of the opposition to the church in China. In other places, it's increasing a bit. And uh, they got to the end of it, and, and the church leaders said the church leaders there in China are, are a little bit nervous about the fact that the church is gaining some wealth and some influence. Because they see what that's done to the church in America, in Europe, in the history of the church. And one, one house church leader said, sort of giving a nod to the church in the West, said, if we ever get to the place where we have complete freedom in China, the church is done. It's finished. Contrast that with what took place in Houston, Texas a month or so ago. The city council and the mayor subpoenaed some, air, some pastors in Houston, uh, re, re, demanding of them that they send them their sermons that were related to homosexuality and a new law that had been passed related to that and what they might have said about the, gov- about the mayor, Anise Parker, who is the first openly lesbian mayor in the city of Houston. And they, they filed a motion to say, we want your sermons. And the reaction was what you would expect. You know, they were upset about it. They filed a counter motion about it, that what they were asking for was too broad and too big. And, and they said, and, and then the, the, uh, the accusation started. You know, a couple of them called the mayor a bully. Talked about how they have a right to say what they want to say and no one's going to tell them different and they, they dare them to come and get their sermons and, and uh, come into their church. One national leader said, I hope every pastor reads this and thousands of pastors go to their government and demand, I dare you to come and, and get my sermons. This is a shot all over the bow of the church, he said. Brian Lee had a different perspective about it. Writing about it, he said, shouldn't we be happy that they might want to read our sermons? Isn't that the point? Isn't this public proclamation? Don't we want people to read, to listen to our sermons? Think about it. Here you have some government leaders who may not have any faith at all sitting down and reading our sermons. That sounds to me like an open door of the gospel. That sounds like a pretty amazing opportunity. Unless, in our sermons, we are being unchristian. Unless in our sermons, we're not really reflecting the nature of God. If in our sermons, we're saying things that we shouldn't be saying. You know, I think about the Apostle Paul telling the Philippians, I'm sitting here in, under arrest and it's the most awesome thing in the world because every day a different guard comes in 
And I get hours to sit and talk with them about Jesus. And some of these guards are, are coming to faith. And, and the Christians here are being encouraged. Because I'm in chains. And instead of whining and complaining about it. He says, this is a gift of God. Because Paul lives not in a spirit of fear, but of confidence. He knows who's in control of things. It's not Caesar. It's Jesus. You look at the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And one of the, I think it's one of the most profound speeches in all of Scripture. Where they say to the king, look, we can't bow down to the statue. And if you throw us into the furnace, our God can rescue us. But even if he doesn't, that's okay. Because we know who's really in charge here. That's confidence. Not in themselves, but in God. And one of the differences of God's people is that we live not in fear, but in security Because of Christ. It's hard to see right now. But one day we're going to see the fullness of God's kingdom coming to fruition. And everything will be clear. And we live between the now and the not yet. And sometimes it's hard to to really grasp the not yet. But if we're followers of Jesus, we know it's true. And that's why the cross that looks like losing is winning. That's why when Jesus meeting with his disciples in those last moments says, John says, knowing he had come from the father and was going back to the father, knowing his security was in the father and his relationship. Jesus doesn't say, okay, guys, get your swords and let's go fight. He takes out a basin of water and a towel and he washes their feet. And he goes to the cross and surrenders himself. And what looks like losing is winning. We don't call it Bad Friday. Because it's winning. And what feels to us so often like losing in God's hands is winning. Love, compassion, respect, praying, listening, speaking truth, caring, giving away. All the things that the culture says, you're an idiot if you do that. You're a fool if you do that. Paul says, then we're fools. Because we know who's in control. And it's not Caesar. It's not the president. It's not Congress. It's God. Who knows what God's going to ask of us as his followers in the days ahead. I suspect that we will become more and more as Christians a minority. And we lament that. Quite frankly, I like being the majority. 
I like living in a culture where, you know, we can do what we want. And I mean, it's good. And we give thanks for that. But if standing up for truth in a loving way, if sacrificing for people who have needs, if being a voice for the voiceless means that life is hard for me and for you, we do it. Because what looks like losing in the kingdom is winning. Greg Boyd said, Jesus didn't come to earth to create a perfect worldly kingdom. A perfect earthly kingdom. He came to earth to create a radically different kingdom. To show what what life really is about to all the kingdoms of the world. So I am convinced that our calling is to pray. Our calling is to be a voice for the voiceless. Our calling is to whatever we do, we do it in the spirit of righteousness, of love, of compassion, of self-sacrifice, like Christ. Heavenly Father, you know, if it's hard for us, we struggle, we worry, we stress, we're burdened. Help us to see you at work. Help us to understand that you are in control. That following you, serving you, serving others, What looks like losing is winning in your kingdom. Father, help us to know how we might most effectively be an influence for you, for good, for justice, for righteousness in a world that is thirsting for something, for an answer. We pray this through Jesus. Amen.